0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 24th episode of the Indian Market Story. We're here to tell you the story of how India is going to reach $5,000 in per capita GDP by 2030. Today, I'm joined with a fantastic guest, Mr. Siddharth Vora, the youngest fund manager in India, the fund manager and head of Quant Investment Strategy at Prabhudas Lyadar. Siddharth, thank you so much for joining us. It's
1: a pleasure, Varun. Uh, since I've interacted with you for the first time and you told me about this podcast, I was always quite excited to you know, have a chat with you and just talk about capital markets and investing concepts. You're very, very passionate about this subject and it's always fun to chat
0: with people who are so passionate. Thank you, man. I, I think this is uh, one of the most important things that we can talk about given where India is. But before we get into that conversation, what is Quant Investment Strategy for those that don't know?
1: So quant very simply is telling you that instead of making investment decisions based on your experience or wisdom or gut feeling or intuition, have a process to the madness, have a system to make these decisions. And when you have lots of data, which is processed by a lot of computer models, and those make decisions for you, that is known as quant investing. And to put it very simply, uh, there are two ways uh, you can cook, right? One is you get an experienced chef who will be like, I don't need any recipes. Main se khana so those are the guys who we call active mm-hmm. fund managers or active chefs. And then there are those who want to follow a recipe, follow a system mm-hmm. to ensure that there's more consistency. Mm-hmm. The food looks the same, it tastes the same, it has the same texture and color. So Quant helps you get to high levels of consistency, repeatability, predictability. And that's why we think Quant is the most sustainable way for uh, managing money and wealth creation. That
0: sounds really fantastic. And we're going to dig into that very shortly in the podcast. But uh, why don't you give the viewers a bit of a sense about, you know, your journey, where you started your schooling and and what your journey to becoming India's youngest fund manager has been?
1: That's a very interesting question. I've actually never thought about it like that, Uh, because the way it happened, it just felt like this was meant to happen. But uh, now that I go back uh, and think about the journey, I think uh, in school, I was not bad, but not great in studies uh, till Mm -hmm. the 10th grade. And in the 10th when I actually studied a lot and I was always crazy about sports, Mm -hmm. football and volleyball and table tennis and badminton. I only used to keep playing all the time. So 10th is when I finally, my parents said that, you know, this is really important and you must give it your best. So that's when I really became very serious and uh, I came third in my school which was unheard of for mm-hmm. me for my parents so we were very happy and I think after that I became more serious towards education and I did my chartered accountancy and CFA mm-hmm. I also did my MSc from the University of Warwick I think you yes. also studied there if I'm not wrong
0: yeah that's an alma mater we share
1: yeah so that that was the educational journey and other than that I think uh given that my parents have been in capital markets for more than like close to three decades. So a lot of dinner table conversations were about investing and stocks and management and markets. So there are some things you learn without knowing that you're actually learning them. Yeah. And capital markets happen to be a subject like that for me. And uh, when I joined PL after everything, after I came back and finished my studies, I started in institutional research. After that, for one year, I was there and I moved into investment strategy, research and advisory for a brief period of another year, post which I realized that Quant is the way for me, for the organization and for India to also, to be honest. And uh, the reason I realized this is because after all the things that I saw people in my organization, seniors in my organization do, uh, I realized that everything is extremely Mm person-dependent. We have a very good analyst for a certain sector. So his calls are widely covered or by the institutions. Uh, In some sector, if we have a slightly weaker analyst, his calls are probably not uh, that widely tracked or respected. So I thought that to make the organization more sustainable... Why don't we have a secret source, a IP of sort that is manufactured in-house, which goes beyond time and beyond a person. Mm-hmm. And then when I dig deeper into this subject, I realized uh, 35% of all assets in US are managed
0: quantitatively. Oh, wow. And in India, this number is less than 0.5%. So when you say 35% are managed quantitatively... Um, uh, where, where? Are we talking about index funds Are we talk about quant funds like Citadel?
1: So br- the data that I've tracked, it uh, basically captures index funds, mutual funds, uh, ETFs and uh, hedge funds as well. So broadly, uh, on all the man- as, uh, assets managed in USA, across all the product types, 35% is managed using quantitative methods. 45 to 50 is passive. So less than 20 is active. And this number uh, for active used to be 78% 30 years back. Wow. So I think there's a huge move out of active into passive and quant. And I think India is still going to see this whole wave come through the next decade.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't know that that's uh, that's how the money had moved. I guess it lends a lot more weight to your strategy of, you know, moving Prabhudas Niradhar in a quantitative direction. Absolutely. So... One really important question. You mentioned that you 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 know, you played a lot of football and you studied in Warwick, so I know that you're probably a football fan. <laughs> uh, which team do you support? So I was one of those restless kids uh-huh. who could play through
1: the day, but couldn't actually sit to watch any games. So even though I liked watching football at a very young age and cricket, but I used to never really watch much. That's fine. As no teams. As- I only used to like playing. I'll that's, be very that's honest. great. About
0: as that. long as you're not a, a United fan, you know, you're fine.
1: Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, whatever limited football <laughs> I've seen uh, was Manu. Oh, I loved uh, Van Nistelrooy and uh, Beckham, Ronaldo,
0: that phase. Yeah. Those days a lot. Rooney. Gone. Those days I are think long that, <laughs> that's
1: the last time I used to watch
0: football. Good. Good. <laughs> So, I have a question for you, right? So, mm-hmm. both of us, we went to Warwick. Uh, obviously, a really smart guy. You must have had a lot of opportunities to stay and work in the UK or the US. Why come back to India? What what pulled you back here?
1: I actually never even thought about staying in London really? or UK and working there. I don't think I had that mentality from day one. Even when I was a very, very young kid, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I couldn't imagine myself doing a job anywhere. And... I never even thought about it. Wow, man. Yeah. There's such such incredible focus on... No, I mean, I don't call it focus. I think I, there are just some things in life you're very clear about that this you want to do, can do. This you
0: don't want to do, can't do. So I think doing a job elsewhere was never... Fair enough, yeah. man. So let's let's come to your brainchild. The the quant uh, investment strategy. So I guess as, as far as you're willing to disclose, can you maybe talk about what components go into this and and... I guess what broadly the, the ingredients might even be, even if we're not, even if we don't know the, the quantities and, and how it's put together.
1: So before I answer this one, I would actually like to go back to the previous question about UK and job and India. Sure. So actually when I came back from Warwick in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, I think that was the year. I came back and started a company on my own here. Mm-hmm. It was called Sorcery. Mm -hmm. It is basically a food and beverage company, like an FMCG sort of company, where the idea was to make uh, gourmet dips, sauces, spreads, all of that. And again, that is related to Quant and I'm going to come to how it is related to Quant. My journey of Quant actually started then. Even back then, I wanted to do a business which created IP and sold IP. Okay. So when you're talking about cooking anything, right, whether it's an Indian dish, a pasta or like a pizza or like a stir fry, The main thing is the sauce or the marinade or the gravy. Right. Right. So I always wanted to create that. Okay. So I'm actually more passionate about product design than about investing also. Okay. So even back then in 2013, the first company that I ever started, which has now been acquired by quite a few people from Green Sequoia, I think quite a few people. I moved out of it in the first year itself because I had to further complete my education back then. So the idea of Quant actually came back then that create products where you create and own the IP, right? So nobody can disrupt you because you yourself are the creator of, uh, the intellectual property. So back when I joined in peer, again, the idea was I interacted with our economists, with our technical analysts, with my whole 35 member research, fundamental research team. And out of interacting with everybody, I realized that, okay, everybody has their own thing, but how do I make it all come together? And there was no other way other than quant to make it all come together because imagine uh, the job of a technical analyst on a every single day basis, they need to open multiple charts, take multiple calls, take multiple decisions. What is the consistency? I I just can't imagine that process being consistent, however Mm -hmm. seasoned the analyst is, but if I could take the brain of that analyst and ask, okay, what are you looking for at the charts? What are you trying to predict out of this? Are you looking at crossovers? Are you looking at mean reversion signals? Are you looking at breakouts? Are you looking at uh, volume and price moves together? What exactly is it that you're looking for? And then take them, convert them into indicators. Mm -hmm. Test those indicators for multiple cycles. Then build conviction of what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. Like that, apply the same process for fundamental analysis and for macro-analytics. That is when uh, all our strategies, which combine macro, fundamental, technical, sector analytics, valuation analytics, it all comes together using quantitative models and
0: methods. Wow, man. Hmm. Uh, I think it's a... Uh, We've always been obsessed with the secret sauce in some always, way or another. Always.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of Shark Tank as a kid, what's <laughs> the IP, where's the patent? Yeah, <laughs> Those I, kind of questions. I
0: think, uh, well, hopefully you know, every kid that's growing up in, uh, on Shark Tank in India will also learn these lessons, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need
1: a moat, you need an IP You need something that is Accessible to you which is not Accessible to others Mm -hmm. To that extent I feel even a mobile app right? I could have probably taken that direction That most of other kids my age Who joined the business uh, Decided that okay Let's get a mobile app for the organization Or let's do this While all that was already happening at PL By other department heads I just thought that okay a mobile app Once I make it Everybody will see that this is what it looks like. So they will also make something similar. Mm-hmm. And if somebody else makes a better one, everybody has a benchmark to copy. Right. In quant, there is no benchmark because you can't see what is there behind. Because yeah. all the magic is happening behind the scenes. Right.
0: I think, I think that really highlights your point because I think very recently, zero which is the golden standard for, you know, digital trading platforms has been surpassed by Grow in terms of active exactly. customers. Right. Exactly. So secret sauce being copied, but uh, not the quant strategy. <laughs> so... I guess, let, let's maybe go a, a layer further, right? What, I, what we've learned, right, is, is technical trading or technical analysis is all for short-term trading. Absolutely. Um, macro analysis, as you know, a lot of seasoned investors say, doesn't lead to any good outcomes. And what most, most, of the, most seasoned investors in India swear by is fundamental analysis in their gut feel. So that's been, you know, the historical story. Think of like the Ramdevs, the Rakesh Indianwalas, Ramesh Tamani's, so on. They all they all have this gut feel and fundamental plus plus approach, um, I guess, and that seems to have worked in some degree because of information asymmetry, mm. uh, opaque market. Do you think that that will continue to maintain a sustainable advantage, or where does where does you know investing go here? So I'll give you
1: my two perspectives on this, right. I don't think active investing or fundamental plus-plus investing is going to be disrupted. The way I'm looking at it is Indian capital markets are becoming broader. They're becoming more efficient. There's more retail participation. There's more global participation. And today, uh, where we stand, the availability of data, the advent of technology, and uh, the kind of talent that is there in India today, I don't think this was available in India 20 years back. Mm -hmm. So some of the largest and most successful quant funds in the U.S. started 30, 40 years back. Mm -hmm. India is just getting started on that journey. Mm -hmm. So as the market evolves, you need more efficiency to play the markets and to Mm -hmm. navigate the market cycles. Mm -hmm. So while the fundamental approach will be very, very relevant, and even our quantitative models draw from fundamental approaches only. I think 80% of my quant models are actually fundamental. Mm -hmm. So we call it quantum mental approach, mm-hmm. where you're using quantitative methods to process data. But the actual science is fundamental, technical, economics, sentiment, analytics, mm-hmm. all of that. So as India progresses, I think public money management might lose share to quant and passives. Mm-hmm. But on a personal front, right, to take that three year five year call there will be fundamental investors who will still do very well. Mm -hmm. But the difference between the two is every fundamental investor comes with a style bias. Mm -hmm. For example, a lot of people would uh, align with a growth style of investing. Mm -hmm. Few others would align with a value style of investing. Mm -hmm. Another set would align with a quality style of investing. Mm -hmm. But markets don't operate as per these styles. Mm -hmm. They operate in cycles. Mm -hmm. In every cycle, a different style does better. To give you an example again, so when the economy is doing very well, we are on a strong growth footing, a growth style would do better. Mm-hmm. But when interest rates are on the rise, a value style does better. The, one, the phase we are experiencing, say, in the last one and a half, two odd years, where value is doing very well, your PSU stocks, defense stocks, PSU banks, power stocks, a lot of these utility companies, they are all doing really well. Again, there are a lot of growth triggers for all these companies. But again, the broader theme that's playing out is value. Right. Value as a factor became relevant after a decade. Right. And the factor which has completely gone out of favor now is quality. Mm -hmm. Right. So every fund manager who brings a style bias on the table, and trust me, you can't avoid it. Yeah, of course. You can't avoid the style bias. What happens with investors, retail investors is, they look at the last two, three years of performance of a certain fund or a product and they're like, okay, this is good. Let me put my money here. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, in the last three years, that fund did well, obviously because of stock selection and fund manager skill, but also because of the fund's style bias and that style performing well in that macro regime. Right. In the next three years, the macro regime can change. And that style might not be relevant and another style might be relevant. So usually, styles persist for two to three years and they again take two to three years to come back in favor right so all these investors might actually have the risk of underperformance mm-hmm. and this is what is happening so my idea was to create a style agnostic and style adaptive strategy
0: right which is only possible to do quantitatively so i guess one thing that i'm understanding from what you're saying is the macros drive a lot of the success for a style in a given in a given time period like you said in a particular three-year cycle in a particular three-year macro cycle a particular style might not work out too well in another three-year cycle that might work out really well the challenge with macros though is that it's a the breadth is enormous right and even today the the amount of macro data you can get it's it's infinite and right. oftentimes what you're hit by is a bit of a black swan you know something that spiraled out of control somewhere like the russia-ukraine war or you know israel hamas or you know chinese debt bubble or us there's it's always a blackstone events and macros that, that create issues. So how does the quantitative investment style approach that problem? So there are two things here. The first one is that, yes, there is
1: infinite amount of macro data and concepts that are there. But for investors, the only macro that matters is the ones that are correlated to capital markets. To make it very simple, we basically look at four, four big global macros in all our models as well, in my multi-asset fund and in my equity fund. So it's growth, inflation, monetary dynamics, and risk appetite. These are the four macros that we track. We believe anything outside of these four is irrelevant from an investment decision perspective. There could be multiple macros playing out, but I don't care about it. Right. And unfortunately, what's also happened in life is all global events, right? Whether it's wars, whether it's rainfall, whether it's uh, auto sales, everything that we track, somehow uh, I'm attuned now to look at everything as a market event. This happened, how will it impact the market? How will it impact Hmm. interest rates? How will it impact currency? How will it impact uh, (laughs) risk appetite? How will it impact gold prices? So now what that is teaching me and what I'm teaching my models is that every time there is something happening in the world, it has to have some tangible impact. And if that tangible impact can be quantified, can be visible in some data points, it would have also happened 10 years back, 5 years back, 20 years back. So our job as quant strategy designers is then to understand what is happening in the world, what data points could it have impacted, could those data points have captured a change in risk appetite in the market or not? Mm-hmm. So now to answer your question, that so many things are happening, how do you really capture it? What black swan event is happening? How will you know what, Like that there's a war, there's a conflict in the Middle East, crude prices are going up, so many things, right? Right. So the way we look at any black swan or predicted event is if that event can influence data points, then I don't need to worry about the cause of the event. I need to see the effect that this, if something happened, but these data points are suggesting that something bad is happening in the world, the risk appetite is reducing or the interest rates are likely to go up, risk off right move out of risk assets i just need to capture the impact of these events without worrying too much about what that event is mm-hmm. and that much my models
0: can do no that's very interesting so i guess let's let's apply this to the situation we find ourselves in today mm. where there's a lot of events going on right mm. but clearly they're they're having an impact on the data i mean you look at inflation numbers; it's very difficult to bring it down uh, you know risk off is back on the table because of a lot of geopolitical risk where do you see or where is your data and your intuition suggesting that the macros are going to go and how do you think it's going to affect, you know, the phase, the macro phase that India is in and the investing style that might succeed.
1: Okay. So, uh, the way I'm going to look at this is India and rest of the world. Right. I think it's, we are completely decoupled from the rest of the world in terms of equity markets, at least. Mm-hmm. And why so? Because, uh, the inflation in India. Is slightly more volatile, but there's a steady decline in the numbers. We've obviously, globally and in India, we've not seen any major rate hikes in the last two announcements. And I don't think rate hikes is visible from here on. So I think rates are going to plateau and eventually come down. So the question is uh, how long rather than how high mm-hmm. for interest rates. When I look at valuations, I think uh, the Indian markets, while these psychological levels, 20,000 seems high, but we are still uh, below, reasonably below, our long-term average multiples. When I look at growth, India is the fastest growing economy. 6.5% to 6.7% is the next seven-year uh, mm-hmm. sort of growth projections for India. And the fast second fastest growing economy in the world is in the 2.5% range. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge growth differential. Mm-hmm. Now when I add all this up, right, growth, population, interest rate stability valuations, I'm getting a sort of picture that India is on a much more steady footing based on multiple capital market factors also. Mm -hmm. China has pretty much uh, done a suicide or a (laughs) no goal or whatever you call it, right? So China's loss is India's gain. Not just from demand perspective of manufacturing, also from capital flows. Right. Because India is the most populous country and it's a huge market for foreign capital, for the as, as an end-user market also and as a capital market also. Yes. So India can't be ignored. Over and above this, the retail participation of India is growing by the day. 16,000 crores is the SIP book as of the latest updated number, which is again, it's a record high number. Even the uh, broking accounts are at record highs. So we are seeing a huge wave of financialization of assets with more literacy, uh, women in the working force, more education and awareness of financial products. I think the Indian capital markets are at an inflection point. Mm -hmm. Now that I look at the growth levers of India, India has always been a service, IT services leader. Now what all is changing? Let's just tally that mathematically. The government has made all the infra-related, defense-related sectors come back to life. Mm -hmm. Our credit growth is strong. So the whole financial sector is doing okay. Other than that, manufacturing has become the biggest theme in India. With China plus one, Europe plus one, Mm -hmm. and make in India and indigenization of goods in India. So manufacturing is coming as the new lever for growth, which didn't pretty much exist for the last two decades for India. So in the next decade, it's worth pointing out logistics costs are also coming down sharply. Exactly. Exactly. So in the next decade, what all do we have firing for us? Services, we are leaders. Even if we hold our leadership, we should be through. Government capex, infrastructure push, defense equipment, defense indigenization, all of that is the second one. Manufacturing in India for India and for the world, that Mm -hmm. is the third lever. And all of this supported with a staples-oriented economy moving to a discretionary-oriented economy. So all of this is actually painting a very good picture for India, where the discretionary consumption, even in tough times as these, is very strong for india right so overall i don't think from a structural perspective india has anything major to worry about given that as of now we are fairly shielded from geopolitical risks as well
0: right so i have a specific question because if the i think you described three growth levels is services economy manufacturing economy and government care packs but one thing that i've been exploring that i want to get your thoughts on is um If we look at GST numbers, the number of GST paying businesses over from 2016 to now has roughly gone up from 1 million to 9 million. And even with UPI, digital payments is now ubiquitous. If you don't accept digital payments, you don't do business. So what I'm coming to is, I I get the feeling on the ground, uh, as well as looking at the numbers, that a large number of SME businesses have for the first time in India's entire history been forced to. To bring themselves into the formal economy, and we know that formal versus informal economy, the growth levers in the formal economy are much more powerful because of credit availability and data availability and the like. So, do you think that SME businesses um, can become a fourth growth lever, or are they, you know, part of these other two, or is this, you know, red herring? So. Uh... On the subject of SMEs, uh, this is a
1: double-edged sword because over the last two decades also, SMEs have been thriving in India fairly well without the uh, sort of formalization that we're seeing today. But now the risk is that the more formal, organized players with scale have much more competitive advantage because of this connectivity, Mm -hmm. right? So if a normal retailer was selling an unbranded product versus an, that same retailer selling HUL's product or I don't know if it's, if it's a mattress retailer. They could be selling a Babu's product that some, some guy who can just come and assemble your mattress. Mm-hmm. But now they'll say, okay, we'll sell only Sleepwell. We'll yeah. sell only Duroflex. We'll sell some branded products. So I think uh, I'm not very convinced on the whole SME piece yet. Because how do you, how are you defining SME? Is it a 100 crore top-line company or is it the real SMEs real SMEs I think uh, they might find it slightly more challenging that's my gut feeling because the competitive intensity is on the rise for all these sectors which are informal so I am actually a believer that there will be formalization of each category there will be unbranded to branded move in each category
0: right so you're expecting consolidation I am expecting consolidation very interesting that's very very interesting I think that's something that I should look into a little bit further so I guess you know I guess let's maybe move on from these hyper complex subjects that not necessarily everyone will understand. Uh, but if you had some advice for investors, average retail investors, on what they should be doing with their money, you know, how should they be, you know, looking at investing? Um, what's your thoughts? Any any advice? Any tips? Anything to share with the average investor? Uh, there's a
1: lot of advice available in the world of how one should be investing, but I think the most important advice is the fact that you should be investing. Absolutely. So the moment you start getting your first paycheck, don't think of ways of you know going to a mall and taking a trip and blowing it all out. First decide, okay, okay, this is my first paycheck. How much of this am I going to save? How much of this am I going to invest? The decision to invest is more important than where will I invest, at least for the retail investors to start with. Now addressing the complex subject of where to invest. If you're an absolute beginner, there are tons of mutual funds, Passive funds, active funds. If you want a no-brainer solution, just buy ETFs or index funds. Sit back, relax. Don't worry about outperformance or underperformance. Just bet on India. You know India is going to grow in the next 10 years. The markets are going to grow based on multiple re-rating and earnings growth. So at the least, you'll make 12-15% sort of returns. And that's significantly higher than FD returns. So if you want a solution that helps you navigate inflation, then at least index funds seem like a good option. Then uh, coming to the other sort of more complex categories, if you can't handle too much volatility, go in for multi-asset funds. Mm-hmm. If you want much higher uh, returns and if you have a much higher risk tolerance and appetite, go in for small and mid-cap funds. So ideally, uh, all the young guys are going to start off, they have a large investing horizon in front of them. So a good allocation to large, I mean mid and small caps and some more allocation to flexi and multi-caps would be a good mix for them to start with. And scheme selection, I think they can do their own research, meet a financial advisor, or just go on some digital apps. And, yeah, and hopefully soon Paisa
0: in. Smart will be helping them with that. But Absolutely. That's, that's, a, that's another story. Yeah. So I guess, you know, we've talked about investors and that's another huge community. But as India's youngest fund manager, mm. you're obviously doing something right at a personal level. Mm. And there's millions and millions of you know kids out there that would love to be in a position similar to yours and build their career in investing. Um, any advice for the kind of skills or mentality or information they should be building up
1: so i think uh, the one common thread in so obviously apart from the education that i've had i was very lucky to receive very good education it's by some of the best teachers in india so leaving that apart i'm assuming a lot of people who are hardworking who are talented have access to education in today's day and age. so i think the biggest thing that has worked for me in whichever way limited way it has has been my curiosity and uh, the hunger to know more to learn and always understand if this is happening why is this happening to try to build those mental cause and effect relationships i think that hunger itself is a very very good ingredient to start off your journey in capital markets so if you're looking at prices going up or down or something happening in the market try to investigate why is it happening and over say two three years three four years you will try to build a a mental database of things that will come naturally to you. Mm -hmm. And you might become a more responsive person to markets because you've programmed yourself in a certain way. So I think apart from education, basic formal education, the only advice is to be very, very hungry and learn how to learn. Right. Because everything will keep changing. The world will keep changing. And if you can adapt to it, you will always be able to maneuver the complexities of life and markets. But if you can't adapt or you can't learn how to learn, then I think it'll be
0: difficult. I think that's that's really poignant and really, really important. Learning how to learn is one of the most underrated skill sets. And it's one of the rarest skill sets as well. So hopefully our viewers take that the heart and, and put some time, effort and energy in learning how to learn. Are there any hard technical skills that you think somebody should be building?
1: There are actually, and I actually have a checklist. So when I'm hiring and building my teams, I actually have identified a set of courses from where I would like to hire people like students who've done studied this or studied that. So all the talent in my team has to be a combination of two things, something finance and something technology, which means they have to have some financial domain knowledge, subject expertise, and they must know how to code or program. And I think coding might be the most underrated skill in India as of now. And I believe not just for the new generation or the next generation, for all generations, knowing how to program is going to be very, very important. So I'm also, that's not my background, uh, but I'm also learning how to program just uh, to be aware of how code is structured, how to evaluate code. I don't want to become a full-time programmer, but having the awareness and having uh, a structured way of thinking makes you a better programmer
0: yeah 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 no i found that to be really useful in fact i just learned a little bit about how to code as well this year because i found it really really useful and um, just learning like data structures algorithms exactly. how code structure i think
1: it makes you even more structured even in your personal thinking just generally in life also and of course in our field it's extremely relevant yeah and in terms of courses i think uh, cfa cmt frm epat World Quant University. There are so many of these courses, right, that are extremely uh, relevant, Mm -hmm. uh, possible to do. Indians have access to it. So I think these are some of the technical programs that one of them if they do, along with coding, I think it becomes
0: a really good combination. We've talked about a lot of the concepts, you know, learning how to code, technicals, macros, fundamentals. For someone that's maybe, you know, already got an existing career, has a bit of money saved up, and they want to manage their money a bit better. Perhaps even apply the principles of quant. Um, How would they do so? How should they be thinking about how to manage their money?
1: So firstly, I think if you are doing a full-time job elsewhere, uh, you're going to be better off doing two things. A, doing very well at that job and B, investing. But because you can't give full time uh, to investing, you should make sure that you find professionals who are doing investing for a living. Whether Mm -hmm. it's mutual funds or PMSs or advisors, you need to give your money to people who you can trust, people who you understand uh, that they will do justice with your capital. So I think leaving it to professionals would be my my advice, rather than trying to do a job and then finding 30 minutes a day to train yeah. or do some investing. I don't think anything works that way, right? You can't yeah, become yeah. an expert in something unless you're doing it
0: full-time. full-time.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think that's to tell of you course. that and how they can benefit from Quant uh, to be honest. Quant is not something which is an individual spot. So at our end also, we have a 15, 16 member team. Right. Macro analysts, risk analysts, financial engineers, Python programmers, uh, fundamental analysts, technical analysts, CMPs. It's a host of, it's a big, big team. And all of us come together to build our strategies so that we can create PMS uh, strategies that clients can invest in to leverage the benefits of Quant. So I don't think Quant is an individual spot. Neither can uh, somebody just, you know, sit on their laptop and do this on their own. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to build and test and improve your strategies. And once you have proof of concept, that is when you manage uh, public money. So for now, I think uh, the strategies we offer to our investors, which is Aqua and multi-asset dynamic. So what does
0: Aqua stand for?
1: So Aqua is actually inspired by water. Okay. And like the nature of water, right? It can take any color, any shape, any form. So we believe investing also should be done like that. It should be adaptive. It should be able to take any color, shape, or form. And the full form of Aqua is adaptive, quantitative, unbiased alpha. And I think the whole strategy is covered in these four words. And I'll tell you a liner of So when we talk about being adaptive, what we are saying is we don't have any preference for any style, any sector, any stock, any management, or any factor. We have no preference. We are agnostic. But by being agnostic, I have to be able to align to the market realities. So I, at some point, Aqua can be a large cap oriented fund. At another point, it can be a mid and small cap oriented fund based on market cycles. At some point, it can be behave like a value fund. At some point, it can behave like a momentum fund. At another point, it can behave like a quality fund. At a fourth point, it can behave like a growth fund. So it can adapt to any style. It can adapt to any market cap. It, it can adapt to any sector. Mm-hmm. it can adapt to multiple factors mm-hmm. so being adaptive is the most powerful principle of aqua which ensures it can ride and navigate cycles and complexities which we only can do given we have su- support of uh, computers and data mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: the other the second concept about aqua is quantitative so we don't want to take decisions on our own the way quantitative investing work is we make processes rules strategies systems And they make decisions for us. Mm -hmm. So we don't tamper with the output of our models. We can change the rules to change the output. But we can't change the output just because we feel this output is not good. Okay. That is how it works.
0: That that must, like, sometimes that must be really frustrating.
1: But it works. It works better than, uh, so I've been managing this for quite some time. And there are so many times we feel that for some of the other biases, right, there are thousands of biases when, when it comes to investing. Right emotional, behavioral, style biases but the moment we try to tamper with these decisions we feel we are making mistakes and uh, simple examples, right, if a stock has gone up 10% over the last one week and your model is somehow telling you to buy that stock actively you will be like okay I will wait for a correction then I will buy it, it goes on to go up 50% more, you miss that particular idea at that point of time, like that if uh, an industry is doing really well and everybody's talking about, you know, defense is going to see a huge growth. So say one and a half year back, defense stocks went up 50%. So everybody was like, oh, it's already up 50%. How can we participate now? But nobody's talking about the fact that this has a multi-year growth story. Mm-hmm. It will go up 300% more. Mm-hmm. So when our quant models factor all of these things in about growth, valuation, sector, style, etc., it actually gets those stocks in the portfolio. Okay. And if I try to use my own brains that, okay, it's already run up so much, I'm not going to buy it. It usually hampers decisions. So the second point is, uh, when we are going quantitative, we're taking a man with machine approach, which means the man decides the rules based on intelligence, insights, expertise, but we leave the testing, the validation, the verification to machines. Right. And given PL has been in this business for 80 years, There is a sort of research pedigree, a DNA to investing and a lot of capital market insights that we have as a group have gathered over the years. So we try to leverage on new technology, uh, on quantitative techniques to blend all of this together. We want to enhance what we know rather than do it differently. Right. And uh, unbiased. Right. When you're talking about being unbiased, so... Yesterday only, I was talking at uh, some seminar, and people wanted to just talk about biases. Like, what are the investing biases? Mm-hmm. So, there's. I'll just take you through a few examples, sure. right? So, something called a confirmation bias. So, if you're holding a certain stock, and you read some good news about that stock, you'll feel like, okay, no. So, what I know and what this is telling me is the same. You'll give it a lot of value. You'll give the good news a lot of value. But when you read some bad news, you'll discount it. Be like. I don't think it will impact the stock too much. Yeah. Similarly, there's anchoring bias. You always anchor yourself to a certain price point or, or to a certain mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. And that price point becomes your anchor. I think that's why when stocks run up a little bit, people are, will wait for it to come down exactly because they anchored it. Anchored it. And they can't make the right decision. So in capital markets, all the investment decisions are to be based on one simple point: relative change. From this point onwards, mm-hmm. everything that has to happen in the past, it's already all there in the prices today. What is the incremental delta or the mm-hmm. relative change from this point onwards? Mm-hmm. All the investment decisions should be made on that. And a principle of loss aversion is a classic example of how everybody goes through this, including me. I'm not even saying yeah. I spend. So if you're owning two stocks in your portfolio, say one is up 100% and another is down 30%, and for some reason, you need to create some cash out of your portfolio. You have some emergency you need to spend on. Which is the stock you're most likely to sell?
0: Well, I know I know the answer. I know that investors are going to sell the one that's up 100%. Exactly. And I know they should sell the one that's down 30%.
1: Right. But I wouldn't even say that you should sell the one that's down 30%. You should re it. That after this point... The stock that is down 30% is more likely to make money from here on Mm -hmm. or the stock that is up 100% more likely to make money. But the principle of loss aversion tells us that everybody will sell the stock which is up 100% and not. Why? Because they'll be like, okay, I'm already making profits here. Let me take this home. When that comes on my cost, at my cost or goes into profit, that's when I'll sell it. (laughs) So that is the principle of loss aversion. And then there's herd bias or herd mentality. that. 10 people, you know, are buying a certain stock. They're making some money. For some days, you can resist it. But eventually, you'll also buy that same stock. Right. So, there are a lot of biases. So, when we take a systems-oriented, process-oriented, objective approach to investing, which is based on a set of rules, we're trying to eliminate all these biases that come in investing. Mm -hmm. And the last one is alpha. I think, as fund managers, it's our duty. Generate alpha for investors, not returns but alpha. Yes, alpha is excess returns over the benchmark, right? And in a world where we are today, where so many passive instruments are widely available, if you're generating nifty returns, there is no reason why somebody should give you their money to manage, right? Of course not. Because you can buy a nifty ETF at 10 basis points, 20 basis points, right? So, if you're managing money your objective has to be to outperform the benchmark and to outperform the nifty. So the way we have designed our strategies is that in a bull market, we want to rise more than the markets. In a bear market, we ideally want to fall less than the markets. And on both sides of the cycle, if we are able to outperform, that is when we say that there's a systematic and sustainable alpha to the strategy. And the way we look at alpha is looking at a portfolio approach. And this is very important. I think this is what been one of my biggest learnings over the last five years. So when I started, I only heard stock stories and stock narratives. Mm-hmm. Bajat Finance went up a thousand times. This stock went up a hundred times. This stock went up so many times. So your judgment gets clouded to finding that one stock that will do that. But what eventually happens is all these mutual funds that own these stocks there are multiple layers to actually realizing those returns. When did you buy it? How much allocation did you have to that stock? For what period did you keep owning it? When you saw a huge correction in that stock, did you double up or did you exit? Mm -hmm. There are multiple questions. So the price going 1000x has got nothing to do with how much money the investors will take home from that price move. So what I realized is most important here is a portfolio return. Total, total portfolio return. Even if you have 10 stocks, 20 stocks, 30 stocks. You got one multi-bagger, but your portfolio is underperforming, so that portfolio is useless. Overall, even if you have zero multi-baggers, but all your stocks are giving you median returns, doing better than benchmark, that portfolio is still a winner. And your cricketing example is a classic case of that. You can have a team where there are two star batsmen. Mm-hmm. If they play, they will make you win. But if they lose your team will lose or you have a team where everybody has the potential to hit 20 30 20 30 runs and they can take your whole team score through so aqua is constructed on a granularity ka principle where portfolio has to deliver granular returns and not outsized returns
0: from one or two stocks alone oh so that's that's very that's a completely different approach to what most fund managers take i think what what i've learned is that everybody wants to they see each stock as a chance to hit a multi-bagger and if some fail, they fail. It's fine. But that's Act not completely
1: demystifies that. We don't believe in that at all. We don't want a multi-bagger stock. We want a portfolio over 5 years, 10 years to be a multi-bagger portfolio.
0: Oh, okay. Very interesting. So you guys Granularity are, is the focus. You yeah. guys are taking a very different approach to what most fund managers are doing nowadays. And this
1: can be only done if you're taking a benchmark agnostic approach to investing. And I'll give you what benchmark, what does benchmark agnostic mean, right? So the Nifty index or your BSE 500 index is composed of a certain sectoral weights, certain yeah. stocks, stock weights. So say financials have 30% plus, IT has 12, 13%, Reliance has 10%. Like that, there are weights to different stocks and sectors. When we construct Aqua's portfolio on a regular basis, we don't believe in aligning to the benchmark at all. Based on our models, based on our success framework, which talks about sector rotation, style alignment, superior fundamentals, sound valuation, strong technicals and smart risk management, every stock gets a score. We want the top 25 stocks to be in the portfolio at any given point of time, all of them equal weighted. Which means the benchmark weight can be more or less. We are not doing underweight, overweight around benchmark. We are actually constructing a portfolio based on the merit of each stock. Okay, So it could have a, say for example, industrials, which comprises of say capital goods, defense, all of these sectors, engineering, mm-hmm. had a 40 to 50% weight for the last 12 months in my portfolio. The benchmark weight is not even 8%. Yeah, IT had 0% weight in my portfolio for 2022 when the benchmark weight is 12%. So when we go benchmark agnostic, we are saying that I don't care what is in the benchmark in terms of style, in terms of market cap, in terms of sector, in terms of stock. I'm going to construct a portfolio based on the merit of each and every single security.
0: Wow, okay. that's you, You're taking a completely different approach for anything and anybody is, uh, has done in India before, man. That's really, really incredible. And the fact that it's generating returns is fantastic.
1: The last three months, uh, we've done close to 23.5% wow. versus benchmark at 8%. And we've done give, generated an alpha in the fund close to 15% plus.
0: So how long has the fund been running?
1: so the we launched the fund in june middle of june and since it's launch, consistently for three months in a row we've been in the top three pms's in the
0: Flexicap category in india wow man yeah. incredible congratulations that's a really notable achievement and you've taken a very very different approach to what anybody else has taken um i'm confident it will work out for you man i think I think the, you've got a lot of tailwinds and I truly wish you best of luck. Thank you. Thank you uh, so much. And I will be there to see the journey and I will be in touch to, to keep going more Absolutely. about Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, but I mean, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. you have dropped a lot of knowledge and wisdom. Um, I can't even summarize it. I'm going to leave it up to the viewers to, you know, rewind and find their best moments. But it's been very, very interesting. It's been a fantastic conversation. Star, thank you so much for coming. Thank on you the podcast. so much. It was an absolute pleasure
1: to speak to you
0: and just discuss so much. And I think it was very free-flowing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Um, Mr. Siddharth Bora, India's youngest fund manager. And you can see precisely why he's in India's youngest fund manager. Uh, watch this podcast again. I know I'll have to, de- to find all the knowledge and information we've got. And thank you so much for joining us once again. This podcast is produced by Elixir Equities Private Limited, a semi registered research analyst. Registration number INA 00004787. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Investment in securities market are subject to market risk. We strongly advise all investors to read all related documents carefully before investing.